Please be seated for the Passion History. The reading of our Lord's history of his Passion tonight is recorded for us in the Gospel of St. Matthew, the 26th chapter, beginning with verse 47. And while Jesus was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. But Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him, and suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest, and cut off his ear. But Jesus said to him, Put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you not think that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he will provide me with more than twelve legions of angels? How then could the scriptures be fulfilled, that it must happen thus? In that hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple, and you did not seize me. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. And those who had laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard, and he went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last two false witnesses came forward and said, This fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said to him, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, therefore you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, he has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now you've heard his blasphemy. What do you think? They answered and said, He's deserving of death. Then they spat in his face and beat him, and others struck him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy to us, Christ, who is the one who struck you? Now Peter sat outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him, saying, you also were with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you're saying. And when he had gone out to the gateway, another girl saw him and said to those who were there, This fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth. But again he denied with an oath, I do not know the man. And a little later, those who stood by came up and said to Peter, Surely you also are one of them, for your speech betrays you. Then he began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know the man. Immediately, a rooster crowed. 
And Peter remembered the word of Jesus who had said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So he went out and wept bitterly. Here ends the reading of our Lord's Passion History for this evening. Let us join our hearts in prayer. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, as we, as we meditate upon our Lord's passion history, we are reminded of our great weakness and the weakness of our sinful human nature. We pray tonight that through the proclamation of your word that you would draw us closer to our Savior and that you would give us a deeper and more fervent love for him and his word and the things of his kingdom as we look forward to the day when you will take us to be in our heavenly home. We ask this all in his saving name. Amen. Dear fellow redeemed who have been purchased and bought back to God by the suffering, death, and resurrection of his only Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, God's grace, kindness, and compassion are yours to be found alone in that Savior. When I was in about fourth or fifth grade, 
at Christmas one year, I was given a little magnet set. And uh, I always loved magnets. I think a lot of kids do. And inside of that little metal kit, I remember there were about eight different size magnets and then some steel ball bearing balls to play with. And it was fun to try and manipulate things with those magnets. And it was the first time that I really recall thinking about it or seeing that a magnet could also repel a fellow magnet if they put the two positive ends together. And I still remember putting one on my desk, one of the bigger ones, and turning the magnet around the opposite direction it should be, and suddenly it shot down onto the floor. It's kind of a picture of how our hearts can be about God sometimes and about the things of Christ and his kingdom. We see that reflected in the story with Peter tonight. And um, the, the same faith that's inside of him that can draw Christ to himself and that, that loves him so much. And then at the same time, he can be the same person that repels Christ and pushes him away. Peter, just hours before all of this, was very, if you will, magnetized toward Christ. We think about some of the things that had just taken place in the upper room. Jesus was washing his feet, and he said to him, Lord, not just my feet, wash my head and my hands also. And he expresses there that he's willing to go and die with Christ. And uh, he had just received Christ's body and blood in the, in the sacrament, the first time that it's instituted. He just sung beautiful hymns with the disciples that night as they were going to head out into the Garden of Gethsemane. And I can, can only imagine Peter probably listening intently as Jesus gave a, a number of directives to his disciples that evening. I bet if, if you were there that evening to watch Peter, you would have thought he was probably one of the most committed to Christ, maybe the most committed to Christ of anybody that was in that upper room that night. And he is the one, when they finally get to the garden, who steps forward to physically want to defend Christ, takes out a sword, and wants to drive away somebody that's coming to take him into captivity. But then, this is the same Peter that is also falling asleep. Jesus has to come and say, could you not watch with me one hour? And man, how quickly the magnet flips. How quickly he is repelling Christ. Not just neutral. He's pushing Christ away from himself. He's asked about him in the, in the courtyard that night. I don't know the man. Three times, the last time he brings down curses on himself wonder what he said. What, if, what, what did he call on God to do to him if he had anything to do with this guy named Jesus of Nazareth? Just think how, how far things have changed, how dramatically things have changed in such, such a short period of time. And in those moments, he, just like us, he's assessing his relationship to Christ in light of what is now a difficult situation. Okay, he's he, he has the potential here to get in some, what he appears to be, maybe some trouble. Maybe it's just purely psychological. Maybe it's just someone's going to make fun of him. That happens to us, too. Because of our faith and our allegiance to Christ, we have times when we maybe feel like we're going to get made fun of. Maybe it's easier to just deny we have anything to do with him. Maybe he was afraid he actually could have some physical harm brought to him. Maybe this was going to somehow hurt him. And so... 
he, his, his sinful human nature overrides his faith that would have drawn him toward Christ and actually now pushes him the opposite direction. What a picture of me, what a picture of you at times in our lives when, when we let the same type of thinking override what our faith would tell us. And it, it happens in little subtle ways. It sometimes happens in rather large ways. The same thing we see happening in King David in the Old Testament. King David, at one point, welcomes the crippled young boy uh, Mephibosheth to come and sit at his table as an expression of God's grace to him and how God had been so gentle to him and he now wants to treat this, this poor injured boy the same way. And yet it's that same David that goes and steals another man's wife and impregnates her. This, the same David who as a teenager is hiding in a cave for fear of his life from King Saul. And he goes up and cuts off a piece of Saul's robe and later feels guilty about doing that little thing, even though Saul's trying to kill him. But it's that same David who then takes that same hand he probably used to hold up that robe to Saul and writes a note to send Uriah the Hittite to his death in the front of a battle. How the, how the magnet toward God can so quickly, easily be flipped to cause us to repel the things of God and his kingdom. Way back in the very early church, about a hundred years after the book of Romans was written, roughly in that time period, there was a pastor at the church in Rome, and I'm going to read you a couple sentences out of one of his sermons, because you can tell this was an issue that the early Christians had to deal with too. And he's, he's writing to them, kind of chastising the congregation about the fact that, that on the one hand, they, with their mouths, they like to praise God and talk about the gospel and what Christ has done, but their lives don't always reflect it. Listen to what he says. He says, unbelievers discover that our works are not worthy of the words which we speak. Right away, they begin blaspheming, saying that it's an idle story and a delusion. And that's, that's the point he's making, is that when we, as people who profess to be Christians and followers of Christ, when we let our lives act like we're repelling Christ by how we treat people or things we do or what we think and say and so on, it sends a false message. It sends a hypocritical message about, about the Christian faith itself. Now, this all catches up to Peter. When Peter, we're told in the other Gospels, Jesus turns and looks right at Peter during all of this, and he goes outside and he wept bitterly. The, the Greek word that's used here means to be angry with yourself. It, it's a word that sometimes is used to describe when your uh, internal intestines and stomach are bothered by something, something that tastes horrible that goes down inside of you. So this internal self-hatred that Peter has suddenly turns on himself and he realizes how far he has fallen in such a short time. And he, he's maybe thinking to himself, which is easy to do in these situations, this faith that I claim to have, what a sham. What a sham I am to claim that I, that I care about this Christ. And yet look at my life. Look at, look at the garbage that I do with my life and let come into my head and mind. And the things that come out of my mouth. What a sham this appears to be so often. And Christians can sometimes be really struck with that guilt. You know, there are times when I'm confessing my sins to God 
and I can't keep my mind on confessing my sins to God. I'm thinking of something else. I'm even sinning while I'm telling God I'm sinful. That's how, that's how deep my sin is, okay? We even sin against God when we're telling him that we're sinful because we just can't even do that right. Imagine if you had a friend who was a surgeon and let's say you had something wrong with your heart and you needed surgery. And that surgeon, skilled surgeon, could take a, a scalpel and could cut into your body in hopes of healing you and cause healing to come to you. And it would be a wonderful, beneficial thing for your body. But an enemy could grab that same piece of metal, that same scalpel, and drive it into you with the intent of killing you. Let's use that as a picture of contrition. There are two types of contrition. There is the contrition that the Holy Spirit works in us through God's word when we recognize our sin. And it causes us to realize how desperately we need Christ and his grace and forgiveness and how, how strongly we should want to hold on to that. That's the, that's the way the Holy Spirit uses this pain in our consciences to keep us with Christ. But the devil and your sinful flesh can take that same contrition in your heart and try to kill you with it and say, ha, you think you're a Christian. You think someone that, that acts and thinks like you do is a Christian? So contrition is something we need to be careful with in that sense. When it's a holy contrition from God, it's there to keep us with Christ. But just like we see with Judas, he felt sorry for his sin too, but it drove him away from Christ. It caused him to run away from Christ as far as he could. Now, the fact that this troubles Peter's soul is a healthy sign, and it's, that's true for us too. When, when our consciences are pricked by this and it troubles us, that's a very healthy sign. This story kind of drops three different places into the gospel readings about how Jesus predicted this, and then in front of us tonight we have how Peter messed up. But then we always think about the reinstatement of Peter, don't we? How Christ, after his resurrection, comes and stands in front of him, and he says, do you love me? Feed my lambs. Think of that. He reinstates him so firmly that he puts him in charge of directing and guiding the youngest souls, the most tender souls in his kingdom, toward heaven. The Holy Spirit reinstates Peter so firmly in God's grace and mercy. He reinstates him so firmly that he uses him to write two New Testament letters to all of Christendom for the rest of time. He is so firmly reinstated in his faith and reclaimed into the kingdom of God that he even goes and dies a martyr's death, and legend tells us even upside down. So Christ comes to Peter when he reinstates him, and he becomes the magnet. He becomes the magnet to powerfully draw this sinful man back to himself. And he's doing that to you tonight right through my wicked mouth, through the proclamation of the gospel that Jesus Christ has come to pay for every sin you've ever committed in your life, even the times when you have denied him boldly in front of other people and pushed him away. God's grace comes to you tonight, and like a powerful magnet, God draws you to himself as his child, forgiven, righteous, and holy, reclaimed for heaven. 
Just think how, just think how Christ went on to use this, this restored sinner, Peter, in the future. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised that when Christ comes and reclaims you by his grace and again makes you a child of heaven, don't be surprised to find out ways that he uses you in your life to draw others to himself. I'm going to end tonight with just two little sentences from the end of Peter's second letter. And I want you to think about these words for yourself and also for Peter and what they meant to him. But this is what he writes. God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And then he says, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. Thanks be to God. Amen.
abide with us in the end of the day, in the end of our life, and in the end of the world. Abide with us with your grace and goodness, with your holy word and sacrament, with your strength and blessing. Abide with us when the night of affliction and temptation comes upon us, the night of fear and despair when death shall come. Abide with us and with all the faithful through time and eternity. Amen. 